All right, please open your Bibles or apps to Genesis 2, 1 through 15. Genesis 2, 1 through 15, and it will also be up on the screen. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Thank you. Good morning, church. So good to keep walking through the book of Genesis week by week together. Such a sweet story that God wrote for us. As we walk through this story, week by week, he's introducing to us some of the biggest concepts in the entire world. A couple weeks ago, in the story, we heard about the dignity of human beings and man. Last week, we heard about male and female, the introduction of gender and sexuality. And this week, we get to hear about work, something so many of us spend so much of our lives doing. Before I went to seminary, I had a job managing group homes. Now, as I'd worked throughout the day, if at one of my homes the overnight staff got sick or couldn't come in for some reason, I'd have to try to find someone to fill that spot, to be with those people who needed someone to be up with them at night. Now, if I couldn't find anyone to fill that slot, I had to do it. So I'd work all day, and suddenly I'd have to be up all night after that without having planned on it. In the morning, I was the closest to being a zombie rather than a human being I've ever been. Right? At that moment, my work felt toilsome, it felt burdensome, it felt heavy. And I bet all of your jobs feel that way from time to time, toilsome, burdensome, and heavy. 
So I think that should prompt us to ask the question, why do we work? Why do we work? Is that a good gift that God gave to us at the beginning? Or is our work a result of the fall? We're going to get to see that this morning in this text. And for those of you who don't work, you're too young, you're retired, you're disabled, whatever it might be, this story is also going to get at the ultimate purpose of human beings, and so you're going to be included in this text too. The reason we work is connected to the reason that God created human beings. So let's hop into the story, and let's see what the Lord has to teach us this morning about work and rest and this world that he created. Genesis 2.1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. God created. On day six, he makes human beings the climax, the crown of his creation. And that brings it to a close. That's why Moses can write in this verse, thus God finished the heavens and the earth and everything that fills them. So what we're going to see now is what God does when he finishes his job. What, think about it, after God creates this entire world out of nothing in six days, what's the next thing that he's going to do? What's he going to transition to do? Verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. God rested on the seventh day when he finished making this world. What does that mean? Does it mean God got tired and needed a nap? Like, did making this world wear God out? The answer is not at all. Not at all. Our God never gets tired. He never runs out of strength. We grow weary. We get tired. He never does. He was no less tired when he finished making this world than when it began. I get tired loading the dishwasher. God didn't get tired making this earth out of nothing. So what is his resting mean then? You know, there's two ways to rest. You can take a nap and recharge. You can rest as recuperation or rest as celebration. Like oftentimes, we look for our work to come to a close so we can be with our families and friends or so we can celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving so we can be with people and enjoy one another and enjoy the things God has made. There's rest as recuperation and rest as celebration. And it seems like in the seventh day, since God doesn't need to recharge, this is a rest of celebration. God is celebrating and enjoying the good things that he's made. God makes it all, and he pauses. He ceases. That's what the word rest means. He ceases or stops to enjoy. Our God is a God of delight and enjoyment. And we see that in the rhythm of his being. That he doesn't just do things and then just keep doing things like a machine. He pauses to enjoy and delight in this world. When we move on to verse 3, we see some more of his enjoyment, his celebration of this world. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So because God rests on this day, 
He blesses it and makes it holy. To bless something means to make it full. This world is a full world. By the time God finished creating it, it's full. It starts off as an empty wasteland in Genesis 1-2. By the time we get to the seventh day, this world is brimming with trees and clouds and stars and suns and people and birds and animals and insects and oceans full of fish. Like, it's a full, blessed world, isn't it? And then it says, he made it holy. This is the first time in the story God ever makes anything holy. He made the world holy. He, or sorry, he made this day holy. What does it mean for God to make something holy? Right? So later in the Bible, we'll see things happen like Moses going and he meets God and God says, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. When something's holy, someone is encountering God in that place. God's presence is what makes something holy. God's presence is what makes a person or a place stand out from everything else. So for God to say that the seventh day is holy is to say that this is a day that he's sharing himself with his creation. The seventh day is holy because God is not only giving the world the things he created, he's giving the world himself. That's what's setting the seventh day apart from all the other days. God's coming to rest and celebrate with his creation. That's what makes the seventh day the seventh day. Right? I, I want us to consider for a second and think that what God does when he rests on the seventh day is greater than all he did when he created when he worked. Like It's pretty amazing what, what God did when he worked. We got this. This everything. That's what God did when he worked. But when he rested, he shared himself with his creation. Like, when you're a kid and your dad goes to work, he does amazing things. Like, you're just like, wow, he's the coolest, coolest person ever. But it's even greater when he comes home and you can jump into his arms and enjoy him and be with him. And that's what I think that this word, he made it holy, is pointing to. This was a day to enjoy and delight in and for human beings to spend time with the God who had made the world The world's great, but it's nothing without God. If you have everything in this world that you want, friends, family, wealth, and you don't have God, you have nothing. So in one sense, the world wasn't complete until the seventh day because God hadn't made it whole yet. God hadn't filled the world with himself. On the seventh day, the world he had made became holy. Now, as we look at this verse, as we look at this verse, uh, verses 1 through through three, there's a phrase missing that was present in all the first six days of creation. Does anyone, can anyone tell what phrase is missing? What's that? Um, yeah, that's, that is actually true. That wasn't what I was thinking of. <laughs> um, the phrase I, I'm thinking of is, and there was evening and there was morning on the day, right? So, so there's day six, there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. There's no evening or morning on the seventh day. And the best that we can tell from that phrase missing is that this was a day that God designed to never end. Right? So when God brings his world to completion, he gives eternal life to his people in his presence. It's a beautiful picture. God the, the, the way God started from the beginning is giving his people a never-ending day of enjoying the world and enjoying him. That's the heart of our God. 
If you ever wonder if God's stingy, if you ever wonder if God is not a giver, if you ever wonder if God cannot be trustworthy, he started out by making the world with an endless seventh day of delight. That's who he is. He's a father who loves to give. He's a father who loves to share everything, even himself. That's the picture we end up with of the world on the seventh day. Now, there's so much that we can learn from these verses about what work and rest should look like for us. There's so much. Pastor Scott preached a sermon called Sabbath a few weeks ago. You can find it on our website, and he even delves way deeper than we're going to be able to delve into what it looks like to rest. So if God rests, right, if God works for six days and he rests, doesn't it feel that we should do the same? Like, should we just think that, well, God rests, but I can work for seven days? It's not a good idea. We should rest. And Pastor Scott preached a sermon on that, so I'd encourage you to take a listen to that if you haven't. But one lesson I want us to learn from this this morning is that God in Genesis, in this first part of Genesis, draws clear boundaries between things, right? We see him drawing boundaries between heaven and earth. We see him drawing boundaries between land and sea. And what he does here in these verses is he draws a clear boundary between work and rest, right? God works for six days, boundary, he rests on the seventh day. You guys see how those things are not intermixed with each other, but there's a clear boundary between the two? And I want to encourage and call us to this morning is to have that same boundary in our lives. More than ever, it's easier for our work to seep into our rest and our rest to seep into our work. Right? This is partially enabled by our devices and by our internet. We can be at work and we can be entertaining ourselves. We can be communicating with friends and family and we're not, we're not actually present with work. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're working, but you're actually not really working. And as a result, you're not present there, and you're not bringing forth as good of a product and serving people as well as you could. And then on the other hand, when you go home, you bring your work into your rest because you have your devices at home, so you're answering emails and answering texts from your coworkers. And my wife will testify to this. You're work thoughts intrude into conversations and all you end up doing is talking about work when you're supposed to be resting at home. And life becomes a bleh. A work rest bleh. Right? God has this rhythm. God has rhythm. Six days of work and one day of rest and all we have is bleh. And I think what this is inviting us into is to establish that boundary for ourselves so we can be fully present at work serving people, loving people as best as we can through our jobs, and fully present resting, being fully recharged with God, fully present with our friends and family. We become more like God when we work and we rest with boundaries between the two. And we become more like machines when we never have that boundary between work and rest. So let's learn from these stories. Let's learn what God does, and then let's try to imitate him and emulate him because that's how he made us to be like him. Let's keep moving on in the story. Chapter 4. Sorry, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that God made the earth and the heavens. When I first read this verse, it's confusing to me. It seems like a strange place for Moses to go. It seems like a strangely worded phrase, and it's just like, well, what exactly does this mean? As you read on through the book of Genesis, 
you'll find this phrase, these are the generations of, repeats 11 times. And usually it gives a list of parents and their children. Like, this was the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, and the father of so-and-so. And what you discover is that this is Moses' way of introducing new parts of the story. So he's about to tell a story oftentimes about parents and their children and how God works in those situations. So he starts by giving a list of parents and children to cue us into that. Now, this one's different. These are not the generations of a parent and a children and a parent and a children. It's the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's unique. And that's because the story that we're about to delve into is unique. God's not going to tell the story of how he brings the next generation through the last generation. He's going to tell the story of how he brought the first generation out of the earth. So this is a unique phrase in Genesis for a unique part of the story. God's going to tell the story of how he brought the first generation, the first human beings, out of the ground of the earth. That's why this is the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. As you heard Sarah read the story out here, you might think, well, this sounds a lot like what we've already heard. We already heard the story of God creating human beings. This actually sounds a lot like the story from a different perspective, sharing new details that haven't been shared yet before. You'd be exactly correct. That's exactly what this is. So the creation of human beings is such an important moment in the story of God's creation of the world, that the story is actually going to pause here and go through it again and share new details so that we can get it better. So, so the, the, the Bible, um, I've heard it described as meditation literature before. And to meditate on something, you rehearse and rethink and reconsider the same ideas over and over again. So what the Bible wants us to do is to reconsider the creation of human beings so we can understand more about who we are and who God is. So that's what we get to do this morning. We get to keep meditating together. So verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So Moses is setting the scene for us here. We're actually learning new information we haven't learned yet. Genesis 1 tells the story of God preparing an incredible home for people. What we find out in these verses is that there's actually parts of the planet that are not yet a good home for people. So God made part of the earth habitable, made part of it full of abundance, made part of the earth a great home for humans to be in, and he left some of it uninhabited. He left some of it inhospitable. He left some of it a wilderness. That's what I think it's getting at with there's no bush of the field and there's no man to work the ground. And part of God's way that he designed the world is not that he said, here's the world, here you go, now sit and do nothing. God leaves unexplored potential for human beings to accomplish. God leaves work that's unfinished for his people to finish. Do you see the difference there? God worked and he could have just finished it all and said, there you go, now just go rest in it. But that's not what God did. He created part of the world as finished and left part of it unfinished so that he could use us to finish it. But 
When you read in the beginning of Genesis, it talks about the earth as being void and without form. You guys remember that verse? This verse is describing some of the world as still void and without form. God started with a void that was without form, and he formed it into a good home. And then he's going to take human beings and send them into a wilderness that's void and without form and tell them to make this into a good home for people. He doesn't start with human beings with nothing to do. He starts with human beings who have an incredible purpose that corresponds to and flows out of God's purpose. Human beings living out and accomplishing God's purpose after him. Verse 7, now, we're gonna, he's, now the story's going to tell us about the human beings that God creates to accomplish that purpose. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So now we learn more about the first moment human beings were created. The word formed means like God created the human being like a potter creates a pot, like an artist, carefully fashioning and forming it together. Right? We struggle often with a low view of ourselves, with self-loathing, self-dislike, discontentment with who we are. And yet the Bible tells us that God formed us as like a piece of artwork. He didn't spend time creating anything else in the world like he spent time creating human beings. So we dare not think of ourselves like that. We do not believe the enemy's lies that were worthless, valueless, unimportant, or purposelessness when God first created human beings like intentional works of art. It says he created us from the ground. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. That's why, we call, that's why the first human being is named Adam. It's pretty simple. He's just a man. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. Adam came from Adama. God formed the man from the ground, right? The story is making a connection for us that human beings in the ground are closely related. We're closely related to the earth from which God formed us. And then, right, then what's the next thing this verse says? That God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You could even picture God bringing his face down to this newly formed piece of art and breathing his own life into it and causing it to come to life. This is like an act of intimacy. Like it's close, it's close, it's intimate. And so there's also a connection between human beings and God. A human being can have a lower, more humble beginning or a higher one all at the same time. We're from the ground and from heaven. God made us in a way that we'd be in awe and thankful for what he made us and utterly humble all at the same time. Be amazed at what you are and don't ever stop being humble. You're from the ground and from heaven all at the same time. And what we'll see in the story as we go on is that human beings are like bridges between heaven and earth. There's something of earth in us and something of heaven in us. And God means for us to be bridges between heaven and earth, bringing heaven to the earth. Verse 8 says, 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God puts all of his heart into creating this special creature, this special being. And he wants to create a special home for that creature, that, that human being. It says he plants a garden in Eden. Eden means like the happy land or the ha- land of delights. Like, I don't think it could be any clearer. Like, this is a perfect world and a perfect place for people to be. In a happy land, God plants a garden for his special piece of art and puts him in there. He puts him in there. That's what the verse says. He put him in there. It's kind of like he's like planting a plant in that garden. That's what like a human being is kind of like, a plant. So a human being is going to be in the garden, and it's going to be surrounded by plants. And he's going to see, this is what God's heart is for me, to flourish like these plants that are all around me, brimming with fruit, brimming with nutrients, brimming with life. That's what I'm supposed to be like in this garden. It's God's heart when he's creating these things. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This garden is a place of provision, meeting the needs of people. And what we find out is that there's like a center to it. There's the land of Eden. In Eden, there's a garden. And then in the midst of the garden, there's a tree of life. You guys see that? There's like a middle to this all. And there's special trees in there. There's a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And all that we see in the story so far is that God is the God who is the source of life, the origin of life, the author of life. So when it says the tree of life is in the midst of the garden, we should see this as a symbol representing God's life-giving presence in the garden. The tree of life is a symbol representing God's life-giving presence in the garden. So when we read in chapter 3, the next chapter, that God is with Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with them in the cool of the day, we shouldn't be surprised because he's setting, up for the, setting us up for this, that this is a garden where God is present. This is a garden where God is present. The garden's holy. Just like the seventh day, the garden is holy. God fills the seventh day, and he fills the garden with himself, The story is making the same point over and over again that God is sharing himself. And it's so good, right? It's so good that God meets human needs with food when they're in the garden. He gives them food. He gives them what they need for sustenance. But then he gives them what they need even more. He gives them his presence. If this garden lacked the presence of God, this garden would be a poor home for human beings. Even after everything we said, if this garden lacked the presence of God, it would be a poor home for human beings. And God was there in the garden just as he was there when he made the world. God is sharing himself with the people he's made. It also says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there. Pastor Daniel is going to preach a sermon in a couple weeks that's going to touch more on that. I know we all want to hear about that. We will. I promise. And verse 10 is going to continue to paint the picture of this garden that's overflowing with life. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. 
It is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. So God causes, there's, there's like a river, right, that flows into the garden. It's watering the garden. It's supplying the garden. It's giving everything people need to live and thrive. And then it splits into four and goes all throughout the rest of the world. So it's painting a picture for us of God supplying life for the garden, but then that life not stopping there. The life continues outward from the garden into the rest of the creation. You guys see that? So the garden doesn't stop. I mean, the life doesn't stop with the garden. It goes beyond it. And that's going to help us understand this next verse, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he puts man in the garden, and God has a purpose for this man in the garden. He's supposed to cultivate this garden, and he's supposed to protect this garden. This shows us right away that work is a gift from God. I'm going to say that again because I know a lot of your jobs were frustrating this week. Work is a gift from God. It's something he gives human beings right at the start. God's a worker. The word used for work in Genesis chapter 1 is the same word for human work. Surprise. And God's a worker, and he makes the first person a worker. And more than that, He gives him the same job as God has. God's job is that he takes upon himself is to form this world into a good home for human beings. When we work, we're continuing to make this home a better home for other human beings. That's what a good job is. Not every job is that. There's some jobs that don't serve and love other people, but most jobs that serve and love other people are us continuing to do the first job that God began which means that every job has dignity, worth, and value. Right? There's different ends of the spectrum. When we tend to think of like an ordinary job or a menial job, we tend to think of flipping burgers. Or we tend to think of a prestigious job like the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Both of those jobs and everything in between images God. We're not supposed to think that when we show up to a worship gathering, we're honoring God, and then we step out of that and stop honoring him for the next five days we go to work. That's not the case. God owns all that time, and when we go to work and work hard, we're reflecting him. Work is a gift from God. Work images God. Tim Keller says this, work did not come in after a golden age of leisure It was part of God's perfect design for human life. God designed us to be workers, and it's a good gift that he gave us. Amen? All those hours a week that you spend on your job are not unimportant to God. They are important to him. So you shouldn't think that my Bible reading time, my church participation time, my family time, that's what God cares about. But these hours I spend at work are unimportant to him. That's not the case. The hours you spend at work 
forming this world to be a better place for other people are important to God because that's part of what he created you to do. That's part of the reason he formed you to be psychologists, to be business analysts, to be realtors, to be construction workers. All these things that make the world a better place God made for us to do. I love that I have a house that I get to go live in. I love that. I love that I don't have to sleep in a park. That'd be so hard. And someone learned everything they needed to learn to build that house so my wife and me could live in it together. And God cares about that. That's a thing we're celebrating. Let's take a closer look at, at, closer look at Adam's job to work in to keep the garden. So his job to keep the garden means something the line, along the lines of cultivating it and protecting it. Right? So a garden's organic. What's going to happen to it as you cultivate it? It's going to grow, right? Like fruit's going to grow, and the garden's going to spread outwards. So Adam's job with this garden is he's to keep spreading it outwards into these inhabitable places, into these inhospitable places that are hard to live in. He's supposed to spread the garden out and make the world into a good place to live. And remember, we said earlier that the garden is a place where God is, right? So like the garden is heaven on earth. So as the garden spreads out, as Adam does his job, what he's going to be doing is bringing heaven to earth. That's the first job that God gives the people, is spreading it out and filling the world with his glory, with his garden. That's his heart for us that he gives to us originally. And now you know things are not like that. So there, there was a change. Right? So he's told to guard the garden, to keep the garden. And a serpent comes into the garden and lies to him and his wife. And they're deceived. And they disobey God. And they're thrown out of the garden. And they're thrown out of the garden to work the ground. And work at that point becomes toilsome. Work at that point becomes difficult. Before, when God first created work, when he first created the garden, Adam and Eve were alive so that they could work. Now they have to work in order for them to stay alive. How many of you just feel drained of life at the end of a day of work sometimes? Like you just traded your life for your job. That's what happened when the world was cursed. It didn't used to be like that is we work in order to stay alive, and then we die. God's perfect design was interrupted and interfered with, with sin, and now we have to work in order to stay alive. So if you could ask the question, is my job a blessing or is it a curse? The answer is yes. It's a blessed curse and a curse. That's weird. Okay. It's a blessing and a curse. It's both at the same time. There's something of the gift God gave you, and it's also infected and damaged by the curse. And I really think this, that one of the most devastating part of the curse on work is that it separates work from worship. Have you ever sensed that before? Like work and worship are separate realities? So when Adam was working at first in the garden, all he was doing was worshiping in the presence of God. And after the curse, work and worship are broken asunder to the effect that there are millions of people who will work today in this world working like God worked, and yet they'll be in rebellion against God while they do it. Work and worship are pulled apart. 
And I've experienced this before where I just go to work and I put on my work hat and take off my Christian hat and I just do my job and it's like they're two separate realities. I bet a lot of you feel that way sometimes when you go to your job. Part of the curse is that it pulls apart work and worship and it turns what was supposed to be life-giving into toil. And part of the good news of the gospel is that what sin breaks apart, Jesus comes to put back together. Put back together work and worship. When Jesus steps onto the scene, he steps onto the scene as a worker who all he does is worship God as he fulfills God's work for him. It's what John 4.34 says. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus' work and doing God's will are one and the same. He's a worshiper all his life as he works. And then when he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. He finished a good job. His job was to turn rebels and those without a relationship with God into worshipers of God. And he did a really good job at his job, didn't he? In rescuing people, saving them. He did a really good job at his job. And now he wants to bring those things back together for us. Are you, do you feel like you have toil in your heart today? So maybe you're here and you don't, you don't follow Jesus and you feel like your heart is just full of toil, full of labor, full of purposelessness. And I want to invite you to come to Jesus this morning. He wants to give you a fresh purpose fresh healing, and start to bring renewal into the chaos and the brokenness within you. Someone once said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Jesus. And that work and that brokenness and the chaos without you, it will be that case within you until you come to Jesus and are healed. So I just invite you not to leave today until you come talk to me or someone else and ask how you can have the kind of healing and restoration that Jesus wants to offer to us. And the other thing I want to challenge anyone who's following Jesus to do is to start to bring together work and worship for yourself until they're one again and no longer separate like sin made them. The Apostle Paul said, whatever you do, work heartily as if for the Lord and not for men. Which means that when you follow Jesus, your boss is no longer your ultimate boss and your job is not what you ultimately work for. You work for Jesus now. You work for Jesus when you follow Jesus. And you get to start worshiping him while you work. The way you start to worship Jesus when you work is you start to be mindful of him while you work. Like there's a way to just zone out and tune out and just try to get through the day so you can get home and do whatever you want to do. Or you can spend your day thanking Jesus, doing your best job for him, Think of him having put you in your job for a purpose so that you can serve other people, that he was purposeful in giving you the job he gave you. I think a lot of us are probably discontent with our jobs, but for this season, for now, the reason you're working that job is because God planned for you to work that job. And as we do that, we can start to worship Jesus as we work. Being Godward while we work is how we worship him. Work that's below our ability level does not worship God. 
Let me say that again. Work that's below our ability level does not bring as much glory to God. Part of being a worshiper while you work is giving it your best effort. Like if, you, if God gives you a gift or a capacity to help other people and you don't fully use it, if you're sloughing it, if you're holding back, if you're not fully giving yourself to your job, is not actually honoring God. Like, think what your earthly boss would feel like if he knew you were only giving a 70% effort. And God can see that, and you're working for him. So as we give more of ourselves to our job, with a mindful attitude of glorifying God, we're worshiping God while we work. And one transition that will happen as we worship God at work is we'll become witnesses at work. So when we follow Jesus... Work, worship, and witness are all split up, and Jesus brings those things together. So you work, and you worship, and part of working hard is treating other people courteously and lovingly. Like if you're mistreating your coworkers, if you're mistreating your clients, if you're not warm and generous and kind with them, you're not actually doing the job God called you to do at your job. Part of being a good employee and honoring God is treating other people well. If you put all of your heart into your job, and you're warm and you connect with your coworkers, what do you think is going to happen to your relationships where you work? They're going to start to blossom, right? They're going to start to form. They're going to start to flourish. People are going to start to form new relationships with you, and you're going to have influence and opportunity to speak into people's lives in the name of Jesus Christ. God wants to use you at your job to win other worshipers to himself, but you can't do that if you're not a worshiper at your job. And you can't do that if you're not honoring God in the way you do your work and treating other people well and giving it your all. So I just want to call us this morning to become witnesses and worshipers at our work by following Jesus together. God cares about those jobs, and he wants to use us at those jobs in order to bless others and call them into a relationship with the Lord. You will really start to make this earth a better place for other people to live in when you start winning other people to Jesus Christ. Like, if you really want this world to be a better place for people to live in, the best thing you can do is win other people to Jesus Christ. And what better place to do that than your work? The place where Jesus put you for so many hours throughout the week. And just a word right now to the retired to the disabled, to the unemployed, to youth who don't have a job yet. You don't need a job to be a worshiper or a witness. You don't need a job to fulfill the ultimate purpose for which God made you. So if you don't find yourself with a job yet, that doesn't mean you don't have purpose. That just means your purpose looks a little different right now because it's the same purpose to be a worshiper and a witness. So there's something for everyone in our community to do together as we try to follow God and make much of him in the places that we work, live, and play. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are the ultimate worker who did the ultimate job of defeating our sin and healing us and calling us to yourself. We praise you for that this morning. And I ask that you'd help transform our view of work to be one of loving our jobs and loving the people we work with and change our attitudes to ones of appreciating uh, the places and the people we are, where we are, 
and use us, God, in new ways to bring life at our jobs and in this community and help us to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.